Hello, everybody. We're back with episode four with Belinda Weaver. Hi. <laughs> so we'll have everyone pause their Taylor Swift Speak Now Taylor's version album from their constant streaming and tune into the art of freelance pricing beyond dollars and cents. It takes a minute to turn off the thing. I, I've had it streaming constantly. Have you? Oh, your face. What? Bold words. What? I'm a huge Taylor fan. I'm not dissing the Taylor, but I realized I'm not across a lot of her oldest songs. So I was like, oh, these are her old songs. Okay, cool. Okay. So I didn't, I can accept I didn't jump that. on it like everyone else did, but I'm all, I do love Taylor. I've got 100% <laughs> backing for the Swift. That was the vibes check. Now we can proceed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, God. I think I almost lost everyone there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should at least maybe pick a couple vault tracks and just say you like those. That'd be. Yeah, okay. For next just time. Just so you can pass. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we wanted to talk about pricing. And mm-hmm. then I was kind of like pricing is a little boring because I made my rubric. And so I share that with everybody when I talk about pricing. But then you brought up how interesting it is that pricing is actually like the top of the iceberg. And it's more about productivity and how you set up your day and environment and everything beyond just being about the actual dollar, whether that's the hourly dollar or the project rate dollar. And that got me interested again. Because the idea that pricing is mindset and that it has very little to do with a number itself, it's the things you do around that number, boom, I'm in. Yeah, it's a little bit of a surprising take because a lot of people get fixated on the number. And so the conversations I have with copywriters and I show up and go, the number doesn't matter. Wait, what? But yeah, forget about the number for a minute. (laughs) We need to talk about all the other things first. Yeah, and they want a checklist or a, like we want a pricing guide where we can just turn to the right page and put our finger on the right line. And then no, without a doubt, if we say that number, they will say yes, and we will get what we want. And I just have not found that guide. I think that's in some kind of lost treasure ship. Treasure yeah, chest. absolutely. And I think those guides, while they can be very useful, and I like that certainly in the copywriting and writing industries, we're getting these kind of regular surveys because I think we need to talk about it, yeah? But it can be even more confusing and can cause a bit of a spiral when you realise that you are not charging nearly as much as some of the other people in your industry. And then just one more layer before we go into the actual question part, you take that personally even though the whole point was you were trying to not get personal about it. You were trying to just have a number that you could hang out with, but then you end up taking it personally anyway. So it's like, why not start with where you are before you go through the whole process? Yeah. And one of the other things I say quite a lot is when you find out other writers are charging more, be inspired by that because mm. they're, if they're able to charge more, then so can you because that means there are clients out there who will pay those numbers Mm. and you're in control of a lot of the variables that get you in front of those clients. Ah. I'm grinning. 
I wish <laughs> podcasts could convey the grinning so much. So maybe let's start with, I think the first couple of questions are on the basics, like setting up what people are upset about before we get into the mindset part. <laughs> so I wonder what's your take on pricing. And if someone was walking into the space, let's say just a little bit of professional experience in different things, and they want to start freelancing, how do you tend to walk them through where to start with their rates? Mm, I think the factors of pricing, and when we're talking about that, is means what number you can attach to your service and the number that people will pay. So it depends on your experience level. That's definitely mm. a factor. You can charge more when you have more experience because an experience encompasses how well you write, not like in terms of pretty words, but how you can write to meet specific objectives, how efficiently you write, so how fast, and also the client experience you created because more experienced writers will definitely create a better service experience that clients will pay more for. So there's the experience capacity, and I also think it's your capacity to offer proof so a lot of copywriters and writers in general get fixated on the portfolio. I need to have a portfolio to prove that I can write. But there's lots of different other ways. Like there's proof of results. If you're a conversion copywriter, for example, being able to prove that your writing has achieved certain results, that's also a thing. But there's social proof, again, of the client experience. And that can absolutely be more valuable. And proof of process. This is how I work. These are the steps we follow. This is what I do. This is what you do. And all of that proof, I think, is marketing and digital footprint. And then the last one for me is self-confidence, just having the confidence to name a number. And I think this is why men price higher than women because yeah. they just have more confidence. But I will say with those three things, experience, proof, and confidence, Number three, confidence will absolutely trump one and two. Yeah. And I want to highlight what you said about experience encapsulating many different things, because when I say that, people often think experience as in a long track record of clients and clips and these published samples and things. But mm -hmm. experience can come from a day job. Like if you've ever attended a brainstorming meeting, if you've ever emailed someone in a professional context, if you've ever handled the problem over the phone all of that goes into your experience. And that's something where if you have been in a career for 10 or 15 years and you have that experience in one industry, you actually get to bring it with you like a little present for your future clients. And that absolutely counts. And so you wouldn't want to start over at bottom of the barrel rates, beginner rates, just because you're discounting your own experience. You get to bring that with you. 100%. And the reframe of that is when you're, say, for a new writer, you're only new in a freelance capacity. Yes. That's the only thing. And you can then pivot the conversation or shift the perspective of your potential client to say, this bit is new. The freelancer title is new, but I actually have a lot of experience. And what people might not realize is you're actually fitting right into the arc of what consultants do, because you stay in an industry for 10, 20 years, and then you work the heck out of your contacts and your reputation to create freelance work for yourself. So it's really, if you're ignoring the professional experience you bring into it, you're really discrediting yourself and leaving so much on the table there. 
And I'm working with two different people. One is bringing 20 years of banking experience to the table. And the other is like 15 years of public service experience. And the realizations they had when they realized they can go after clients in not the same spaces, but tangential spaces, like maybe financial services apps instead of financial institutions. The amount of expertise you're bringing into that situation that you might not even have realized is amazing. And it makes it so much easier for them to reach out and say hi and get people to write back. Agreed. So I wonder when it comes, I'm looking at the second question that I had about identifying, communicating the value people bring to their clients. So even if you don't have that traditional business background, to me, that kind of speaks to what if you aren't feeling confident? (laughs) I think... You have to borrow some confidence off your future self. I borrow confidence off my future self a lot. And it doesn't matter how experienced you are. If you're a little ambitious, you're always going after moments that are a little beyond your reach. And so how you work through that joyful panic, <laughs> that roller coaster, that's that will push you forward for the rest of your career. So you have to figure it out. And for me, this is going to sound weird, but I'm always like, look over here. Like I'm looking for distraction points. If you don't want people to pay attention to your perceived lack of experience, give them something else to pay attention to. And that might be, this is how I work. I'm going to describe a really solid, strong process of how the project will flow because that will make me appear more legit and confident. Or just the digital footprint and marketing, that can really help because when a potential client's going, let's go and have a little look. Let's see what else she's got to say or what else she's done. Give them something to look at. And a lot of Freelancers are like, oh, I don't really like marketing, but it can give clients something else to look at that helps them feel confident in you. Because when we're making buying choices, we want to see that you can solve the problem that I have, that you have solved it for other people, and that there's some kind of alignment, whether I like you or we're aligning on values. And that can absolutely, along with a bit of borrowed confidence, trump this perceived lack of experience. So for me, I'm like, give them something else to look at. Talk about something else that's just a little bit of a potential distraction that helps build that trust and confidence in you. Do you have a background as a magician that we don't know about? (laughs) It's exactly what Because that's exactly, it's have them look over here. (laughs) Am I wrong though? Would you disagree? No, absolutely not. I've yet to hear anything I disagree with. For me in general. <laughs> it's the secret of my entire career. <laughs> because it is, I think, if we don't do that, we're unintentionally drawing attention to the parts we're most insecure about. Because we're going to show up on the call and be like, I'm so sorry, I don't have any clients. No, I don't have any proof. No, I've never done this before. It starts the Eeyore train headed down. And then you could be my best friend. I probably still wouldn't hire you for my business if you're talking like that. Yeah, and exactly. I actually, I never got into the future self stuff until five years into working. So I'm going to link this link to the playing big inner mentor exercise that kind of walks you through what your inner mentor is and how to get in touch with them. Because I didn't have that resource. And I think that would have been really cool to have a future version of myself who was successful. Because <laughs> I was just panicked in the moment. Maybe I swapped out other people I've been following online as my inner mentor. So I'd think about Ash Amberger and 
Alexis Grant and people like that and think about what they would do or how they would position it, even Mm -hmm. if they weren't super confident in the moment. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's the same challenge, whether you're going, I'm starting at 50 bucks an hour and I want to get to 70 or 80 or 90, or I'm starting at a hundred dollars an hour and I'm trying to jump to 150 or 200. The number doesn't matter. You've got the same challenges. You name a number and then you Mm. back it up. And Mm. this is all, I'm going to say it's not sham, but give them a show. That's what running a business is. And I had this thought recently about copywriters looking for work because I'm a copywriter. So my references are all about copywriters because that's who I talk to. And there, there are some people who go after clients like they're applying for a job and there are some who go after clients like they're running a business. And there's no right or wrong. It's just a very different mindset on how you show up. And it's just something I'm unpacking a little bit in my brain. But basically, you have to give people, you have to guide people through the things that will help them trust you and give them confidence in you. And if you have some perceived areas that are you'd like to build up, then talk about something else that builds up those two things. Yeah, because when you say it's a show, we might think of a really elaborate show and a stage show or an action movie, but we watch calm shows too. We watch relaxing shows and funny shows. So like putting on a show doesn't mean you're going to act a certain way or a way that's not in alignment with who you are, but it does mean you're going to create this little space where you're giving an intentional presentation of yourself. We're going to focus it on positive things and what you do have going on for you, even if you're missing these other spaces. Beautifully put, Sarah. Because I could see for some people, if I told them to put on a show, they would make huge eyes and walk away a little bit. It's an intentional, thought out, curated experience. I'm imagining, like I, for a long period of my life, I played violin and I'd be in concerts and stuff. And then I picked up the cello. And there's this moment at the end of whenever you're playing something where you're supposed to like flourish or make it look like you stopped on purpose. And I would have so much trouble with that because it felt really self-conscious to be like, I stopped playing, so I'm just going to put my arms down and be done now. But really, when it's just you and a cello and a teacher, and then you end and just stop, like there really is value to having that flourish and giving people something that maybe shows appreciation or shows respect for what you were doing, even if it's even if it's something added to the experience. Yeah, and there's some signals in that too. Yeah, yes. Your clients are looking for signals. We're all looking for signals. Have we started? Are we done? Can I trust you? Is this going to be good? And like the, I have always lent into marketing because that was my, one of my career backgrounds and I love marketing, but that kind of giving people lots of signals that you can solve the problem, that you solved it for other people. And there's going to be some kind of connection point it gives you something to do and it gives you something to talk about and it gives you something to show. And as a client, it gives them signals that they can keep moving forward. Boom. That's all there is to say about that. <laughs> I'm so glad you agree. We encourage people to put on a show. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the show is business partner who can help you do something. The show is not employee who can take care of a task for you as you evolve, I think. 
maybe at some point we would be more like a task monkey. But I see that too, because I've done some practice prospecting calls with people. And what I'll see most is that they'll hop onto the call and kind of dive in really deep and treat it like an onboarding call rather than a get to know you call or a business, two business people meeting to talk about a problem. So I see that too. And one of the, I think one of the other things that people really shy away from, and it really does relate to pricing, because I mentioned that we, this alignment, if there's two service providers that look exactly the same on paper, they offer the same service, their price is about the same, they've got social proof coming out of the wazoo, everything looks great, I'm going to choose the person I like or I feel aligned with. And so we need to put out some hooks in our marketing that says, this is what I'm about. And that's often makes people feel really icky because we're writers, we want to sit in our writing cave and we just want to put the words out. But this is, again, this is another signal that we want to give people because clients will feel more comfortable when there's a bit of a rapport. Like all these little things can really overcome a lack of experience, can overcome someone who says that's a bit more than I wanted to pay. We have to put something out there to give people a little Velcro hook. I'm glad you said Velcro because when I picture hooks, I was like fish hooks just flying out and that's a little... It's a little violent, but no, you need the, Velcro is good. Yeah, you need the opposite hook. Sticky tack Velcro. hook. So what about we get into a situation with a client and then inevitably it becomes time to raise prices. Done. Do you have go-to advice on that? This is what I tell copywriters in my group. If you feel a bit weird about putting up your prices, put them up just a little bit at a time, but put them up regularly, not with regular clients, but like with once-off clients coming to you because someone coming to you and asking for a proposal, they don't know what your previous price was. So it's a great opportunity to put your price up. I say, and if you feel weird about it, just do it a little bit and just do it a little bit at a time. I say, if you're if you're booked out, if you're working all the time, then you absolutely need to put up your price because your time is more exclusive. But with a regular client, like a retainer, I talked to a lot of copywriters who were like, this is a legacy client. They came on when I first started out. They're on this super duper low rate. And I I feel bad about putting their prices up because they're the ones who believed in me first and I'm really loyal to them. Mm. There's all these stories about why we should put our prices up and that putting our prices up is some kind of betrayal of that initial trust. Like that we make it, we write to make so much meaning out of this them. moment. And I think you've just got to make the decision and do it. But if it's a really big jump, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, I say do it in a couple of stages, but let the client know that they're really under what new clients are paying and that you have a plan to increase their rate. I love using phrases like to industry standard because that lets them know that they are paying below industry standard and that they are being brought up to a peer rate that they would pay with other writers. So I like that perspective shift because it's not about you wanting more money, but you have to be prepared to let people go because the more time you spend on low paid work, the less time you have, less time and energy you have to go after clients you actually want. So that's the big one. Just be prepared to let them go if they don't want to pay more. 
Yeah, I think that got right to the trick question because it's always like, how can I raise my rates and guarantee that they won't stop working with me? And there's no way to do that because we have no idea whether they thought you were overpriced to begin with and you're charging 20 an hour and it's wildly too low to get into someone else's head and decide for them how much the work is worth and how much working with you is worth. We just have no business in there. So all we can do is grow more confident in what we're charging and then bring them closer to it, probably 10%, 15% at a time, depending on how much that is. But I also wanted to address just the context we're bringing this up in because sometimes the conversation around raising your rates, it can feel really greedy or capitalistic to just say, always be raising no matter what's happening. And I think where we're coming from is hanging out with people who are grossly undercharging and very worried about raising rates and also struggling to keep their businesses going and feeling like this is worth it to do. And so often the answer is to raise your rates because people came into it pricing too low, haven't raised them forever and are doing really good work that takes a really long time and a lot of effort. So it's not so much writing should always be on a rising increase of value, though I do think that that's not why I'm saying this. It's more that the majority of people do undercharge so drastically, and then they don't realize it because they don't have that context into other people's businesses and what they're looking at. And the other part of this is a higher price sends a very different signal to Mm. a lower price because if you are going after clients who have a high price anchor, as in they've paid more for services and so they expect to see a higher price tag, a really low price tag is suspicious. Yeah. And that's about changing who you're talking to in terms of prospective clients. But when I was writing for clients, whenever I put my prices up, I just got busier which is insane. Like it's so counterproductive, but it was absolutely true. I never ran out of work because my price was sending different signals to mm. the market. And that's not to say I was never getting a no, because if you're getting all yeses, it's time to put your price up. If you're working flat out, it's time to put your price up. <laughs> There's all these kind of things, but it sends a different signal to your client. And when you have your marketing that backs it up and you're shifting your messaging to be a more premium service provider and you're offering a service experience that makes your client's life easier, that's a whole different business. And that's, we go back to that point, like it's not about the number. Mm. But all the things you're doing around the number that say that number is worth it. Yeah. And there's a great example I'm probably stealing from someone, but If we think about how we like going to farmer's markets and stopping by and buying stuff from vendors, and if you walked by one and it was $1 a pound filet mignon, you'd probably have some questions about where that came from, if it's really that, if it's been stored properly with the right temperatures. We'd have a lot of questions about why this quote unquote, high quality thing is now really inexpensive. And I think a little bit of that can play into writing where if you're telling me this is going to be heavily researched, you're in demand, you have all this experience, and that's $150 to work with you for three months. 
mm, we probably have different definitions of what good means, or we probably have different definitions of what I'm getting out of this relationship and how often we'll be on the phone. Like it sends those signals right away. And if you go higher and it's $10,000 a blog post, it's probably a no right off the bat, but they're going to be very curious what could possibly go into a $10,000 blog post to make it worth that. It puts you into that level. Yeah. I dig it. So now the part I've been waiting for productivity and how that fits into all this, because we're throwing numbers around and let's say you, you reach a reasonable hourly rate or project rate that is going to keep you profitable if you can get your work done. But then you look up and your child has filled the sink with water and it's flowing over down onto the floor. And now you have two hours that you need to spend dealing with that. Just for example, just as a hypothetical example, how can freelancers zero in on their productivity and kind of enhance their value and make sure that their workday supports actually earning income? Let's pretend there was a question in there. That's, it is a good question. It's a good question because I love talking about productivity, but we all work differently. So I think that's one of the things we need to accept that just because the, my five best productivity hacks work for me, (laughs) doesn't mean they're going to work for you. And it doesn't mean they work for me all the time as well. Yeah. I tried to make a AI script for productivity hacks and it was just the driest, dumbest five ideas you can possibly yeah. imagine. We've all uh, read them. We've all, yeah. We all know them. We can all <laughs> list productivity hacks. But if you want to make money as a writer, you not only need to put your bum in the chair and do the work, you have to work fast. And for, I think a lot of it's distractions. Now, we can't ignore the small human distractions, mm. but we have to get like I say, we have to get better. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about 100% me. <laughs> get better at ignoring the distractions that take our focus away online, social media, notifications, ad, you know, admin, email, all those kind of things. And the more we're in the digital world, the harder it is because the more sophisticated the distractions are. So this is a struggle. Mm-hmm. I'm still struggling this with this and I'm 13 years in. But the end, like what I do with kids, because I'm working around kids, is I get very clear on when I have a window to do some work, some deep work, and when I have a window, I can possibly do some light work, and when are the windows when there's no work? Because a big point of friction I know with a lot of copywriters who are working their business around young kids is in their head they're trying to run a business that someone with no kids and has eight hours a day mm. can run. That's not the business we can run. Seriously. So, you know, it's getting really clear on when you can work and when you can't, when, if you even have one, a deep work zone is, and to protect that time so fiercely. And the other part that is becoming more apparent to me is soul restoration time because you're not a machine. And so one of the things working around my young kids, because this has been the first year that I've had the two kids at school together at the same time, I've got really good at working in really short intervals. Deep work for long periods of time is just not a thing unless it was on the weekend. But now they're at school, I'm like, in the morning I have this 
deep work zone because they're both at school. And so I can't fill that time up with calls and still expect to write. So it's like, when do you do certain tasks and what is your energy and attention like at different times of the day? I think dialing into that is where you start figuring out how to get more done in less time. Yeah. And I, so I want to widen this, not just kids, because I tend to only talk about kids, but <laughs> I've increasingly run into people who are caring for older parents who might live with them, who might have different health issues going on. So they'll just wander in the room and interrupt work at any point throughout the day. And mm. it's not like you can be like, hey, mom, stop, <laughs> go away. You've got to help people. My mom's going through some health issues and I'm going to drop everything and go to these long appointments on Fridays for the foreseeable future. So being able to, maybe where I'm going with this is other people seem to look at what it takes to create a business and then they just fit how to get that done in their day. And that's as simple as it can be. But for the rest of us, we need to look at what we have to offer and then pick what we can get done in a day. So it's, if I only have a two hour window of deep work and I go into it expecting four, I'm going to be very unhappy. Also known as Sarah 2020 through 2023. (laughs) So you have to actually, uh, and this is why I'm so big on capacity planners, especially after COVID and after everybody's burned out to actually see the hour of email that you're doing, the hour of phone calls that you're scheduling and what that takes away from the time that you do have each day. If you don't want to be working nights and you don't want to be working weekends, yeah. it removes yeah. your options. You have to make harder decisions. Absolutely. I've done that for many years because I would look at my day and go, I have maybe two hours tops to actually get some work done. So if I write a list that's got (laughs) six hours of work, then I'm never going to feel good about how I'm working. And I love the feeling of getting through my list. The list is ongoing. (laughs) When you get really good at prioritising and you're like, I did the things that had to be done today that were important for today and I did them within the time that I realistically had, everything else is a bonus. That is the best feeling. The other thing I wanted to mention was this idea of seasons. It took a long time for me to accept that I had to go slower when I had my first kid. It was a lot of friction, but I've grown to accept that this is a season. It's a season of young kids or it's a season of caring for a parent or another. Like you can't work a business that is not the way your life is right now. I'm kind of laughing because my first thought was, can sucking be a season? Can I just be (laughs) in a season of absolute total suckage? Maybe that, maybe that's where we all are. Season of learning, Sarah. (laughs) Okay. Reframe, reframe. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder, so I want to volunteer some of the what seemed to me like really basic distraction proofing and productivity proofing things that I do. And I wonder if as I ramble, you might have a few as well, because you mentioned turning off notifications and this was like day one on a phone for me because I feel so overwhelmed if there's a little red thing or if something makes a noise at me, I'm going to freak out. So just my phone's on do not disturb at all times, even though it does create problems in my personal relationships. (laughs) Cause I figure when I have a minute to look at my phone, that's when I'll see if I need to follow up with someone. Yeah. Yeah. 
use at your own discretion with that one. But certainly when I'm at my computer, all notifications are off. I'm not going to go, nothing is going to draw my attention unless I go to it. For a long time, I would protect my inbox in that way too. I set up, I think it was Boomerang or something had a feature where it would freeze your inbox and not show you emails except for 10, 3, and 5, like whenever you decided to let it. I would do that for a while as well. I would have my VA block me from LinkedIn if I found myself spending too much time there. So I took, I think it was James Clear did that where he changed all his passwords during the week and then he got to have social on the weekends. So I've experimented back and forth. I don't need it now as much because it's not quite as fun, though it is. It's still pretty fun. Let me see. Lists are critical. So I start my day with my planner to see what physical hours that I have at my desk and then what hours have been taken away based on phone calls or previously scheduled things, doctor's appointments, stuff like that. And... Me too. I I find that a solid daily plan definitely reduces distractions because if I rock up at my desk and go, oh, what is it that I should do today? I'm done. I'm, I'll am i quickly check email. I'm like the email is a grenade in your plan. So I like to set the plan first and then go, right, now what else, like what ver- what do I need to be flexible on considering these other things that notifications have informed me of? But the same for a weekly plan and a 90-day plan. The goal is to always turn up and go, I know exactly what I need to focus on right now. 90 day. I haven't thought of that before. What goes into that? Every 90 days I do a new plan on what's what I need to what I need to keep moving forward on because the work with the work I'm doing, I've got a mastermind, a membership and a writing program. And so they open up at various times of the year and I do some live events, but I'm also doing events within those groups. So there's, I have lots of ongoing projects that I need to chip away at all the time. They need regular attention. So if I want to move forward on them, I've got to make some time for them. I'm going to make some time for them. It's when I'm working on things that move my business forward. It's my CEO day. I want to be really clear on what I should be focusing on during that time. So I don't just faff around and waste it. <laughs> Although sometimes nothing like a good faff around. Hey, you said soul replenishment. So I'm yes. going to faff. <laughs> yeah. Some days you're just going to need that. But yeah, coming up with a 90-day plan means that each week, what has future Belinda told me that today Belinda needs to work on? Oh, like this. <laughs> okay, cool. And it just means that I'm less likely to be responsive to the notifications and stuff. Yeah. And so for the planners among us, what does the 90-day plan look like like on paper? Is that calendars? Is that a list? On what I actually have is a week-by-week template in my Remarkable that I just repeat for 12 or 13 weeks. And so what I've done is I've worked out my big rock. I've broken it down into smaller rocks week-by-week. Just a bullet, two bullets. Maybe that's it. This is what the priority is for this week. Yeah, because I think long-term planning is something that can be missing for people when they move into the space too, like to independently decide what that plan is because we're so used to being more in the employee role that we have a manager, we have a company setting our goals for us. So for us to sit down and say, 
hey, it's me, Mary. What does Mary want 90 days from now? I'm not sure that would have occurred to me for a very long time. (laughs) It took me a couple of years to really get the hang of it because I worked with a mentor and my first question in the session was, the first session I was like, tell me what I need to do. Give me <laughs> what do super successful people do? What's one thing? Tell me what this one thing. Give me the secret so that will unlock it all. And he said 90-day planning. Oh. Uh, he also said budgeting as well. But no. <laughs> I had a go at it and I was like, oh, I can't think that far ahead. And over a couple of years, I've built up my ability to look further and further out Um, And it just flows down now where it's nice each week. I'm like, all right, I'm looking at my calls. I'm looking at my priorities and I'm looking at this one thing that I want to move forward on this week. To quote Taylor Swift, stop everything now. Let us just hear what you said, that you weren't good at this when you started and planning was a muscle that you were able to grow. I feel like... Maybe that's my billboard. Like when people ask, what would you put on a billboard that everybody got to see? Because I plan a lot and I journal and I doodle and people say that's nice and they wish they could do it. But I was really terrible at it like three years ago when I decided I wanted to get better at it. And if somebody is sitting down and looking at a 90-day plan and it's just blank in their minds, that's not a reason to not do it. That just means you don't have that muscle yet. So you need to work on it. First, got 30-day planning. So at the end of every month, have a bit of a planning session, put my earphones on, choose some nice music, get some drinks, and then got it to 60 days. Now it's 90 days. Now what I like to do every now and then is go away and do it. That's actually my dream is that every quarter yes. I go and stay in some luxury accommodation. I don't do that. <laughs> but it's nice to go, this is the planning zone. And I try and make it fun. Of course, it needs lots of stationery and music and things like that. But how can you make it fun? How can you give it priority in your calendar? And I found this year, I slipped on the 90-day plans and really noticed it. So I'm like, all right, that's something I can't get sloppy on because it really does help my business. Yeah. And I feel like, especially now, I just keep coming back to burnout and many people I talk to are sad and feeling discouraged, including myself sometimes. But it's like, the ability to plan to sit and look 90 days into the future has, I think, some really subconscious things going for it because it's asking you to not react to the emergencies or the feelings that are happening around you now and like really look with hope to the future of what will be different, what won't be different, and how can I cope with that? What am I striving for or reaching for in a way that's doable right now? I feel like there's a lot more to that than just being like a goody two-shoes planner, which we might attribute to some people sometimes. 100%. And the, really the question is, bringing it back to pricing and all the things, what do I want and what am I going to do about it? Woo, that's spicy. <laughs> that's good. Because a lot of this is I talk to a lot of people who are very reactive and what I mean is they wait for things to happen to them. I can't put my prices up because, and there's a lot of reasons and that's fine. Like we, I all have my, I have my own excuses. I know. At the end of the day, we need to switch to being, from being reactive to proactive. So if you want to put your prices up, what are you going to do about it? If you want to get a different client, 
what are you going to do about it? If you want to not work weekends anymore, what are you going to do about it? Because in a very very empowering and not depressive way, the only person who cares enough, has the agency, or has any power to do anything, it is thyself in the mirror. Yeah. And it can be really small steps forward. And that's what you talked about, raising prices. If it makes you go, I feel so awful about this, just do it a little bit at a time. And that's in all areas. Just do something for a little bit, do a little step forward, bed it in, make it just part of what you do. And I always feel that like I'm pushing my comfort zone out just a little bit at a time. And then I wait for it to settle. And I'm like, oh, this is my new normal now. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Now I can take another little step. And it doesn't have to be a lot. But if you're doing it consistently, then you look back like, wow, yeah, I changed everything in micro doses. Yeah. And I don't think I've thought of it that way, that you're the one who makes the new normal for yourself. Like it's that little push into a boundary. And maybe 90 days, if in 90 days you want to see a big change, that gives you a time block in which to break it down into small steps. So if I want to be here in 90 days, I need to be here in 60 and here in 30. And that means today I'm going to do this teeny tiny thing. I'm just going to figure out what my password is to log into my website so I can change it (laughs) when the time comes. And I'm not changing anything now. I'm not sending any notes. I'm not upsetting anybody, but I'm getting everything ready. So maybe I could hit publish the minute I'm ready. Maybe I'm drafting the email with let me say no name in the to line because you will accidentally send it. So just draft the email part, (laughs) get it ready and then sleep on it for a couple of weeks. Do these small productive things for yourself that don't require you to take any risk, but do require you to take some action. Yeah. And that's, that is exactly how I get stuff done. Some people are like, no, I need to make big dramatic things and I'm going to move on big ideas and Fine. If that's how you roll, love it. But for me, I just need to tiptoe forward and trick myself into getting there. Articulating what it is you actually want, that's the first step. We need a name for it. It's like altruistic tricks or like gentle tricks because I also trick myself in many Mm -hmm. different ways. But it's not the kind of tricking that we're mad about on social. (laughs) Like when people are pulling pranks. The self-prank I'll workshop it. So I wonder when we're thinking about time management under distraction. So when we know there's all these forces and internal and external that are keeping us from spending our time how we want to, what do you suggest some effective time management practices could possibly be? I'm all in on the Pomodoro (laughs) technique. I think aggressive time management is... (laughs) one of the hallmarks of successful people. And I really protect my time because the thing is I want to work less. And I know when I don't work efficiently and I don't manage my time, I'm working for longer, but I'm just not getting as much done. And I would much prefer to have a weekend without work and an evening without work or to knock off early and go to the playground with my kids. Like I'd much prefer to be doing something fun than just still being at my desk. So that's my incentive. And I'm all in on the Pomodoro technique, which is working for a designated amount of time, whatever works for you, and then having a bit of a break and then coming back to it. So I often don't break 
even though I know it's good for me. <laughs> but what I really take from the Pomodoro technique is mapping out exactly how much time I have in the day, then figuring out my priorities and assigning times to them. So I'm never just taking as long as it takes. I have allocated 90 minutes to work on this thing and that's how long I'm going to work on it. And then I have at least a 30-minute drift. So I have 30-minute padding that I'm not allocating work to because things will inevitably take a bit longer. I will get distracted, all those kind of things. So for me, that helps me stay focused and manage my time during the day because it gamifies it for me. What about you? Yeah, this the exact same thing, but for incredibly different reasons. And that's why I was so surprised as you were going, because I found over the years, I don't actually like fun. And I would <laughs> rather work than go to the playground. And if I have a weekend with a block of time, something inside me is, man, I could probably do something really cool on my computer, which is a really, I don't think this is a good thing. So I would like to better my relationship with fun. And I'm working on that. But I cling to the Pomodoro because it's that's what allows me to claw for purchase on my day where I have this, these triggers throughout my day where when I'm feeling very distracted and maybe anxious and just everything's coming at me at once, the process of leaving my office, the physical room, doing some kind of chore, like maybe 10 minutes, just fold 10 minutes of laundry and yeah. then coming back into the room and sitting down with a Pomodoro that just, like a car, it just clicks me back into the line and I can have some momentum no matter what else is happening in the day. So I think it is that process of creating, like you have to squeeze your brain and psychically create a moment to work throughout the day because otherwise you just can't get on that bus. I think yeah. it's swirring around too much. Absolutely. It gives me, I'm like, oh, I can do it for 25 minutes. Come on, Belinda, just focus. Yeah. Get it. You could stay off Facebook and threads and Instagram for 25 minutes. Yes, I can. And this is me going, yes, okay, cool. <laughs> Just going to do the thing. And then it's done. And I'm such a child around digital distractions. <laughs> and I'm like, you get to go and check that when you've done this thing for this amount of time. And as you said, I love that idea. It just clicks you into focus mode. And that's one of the biggest things we need to protect if we're going to run profitable businesses. And I totally agree with you about the fun. I was really surprised when I actually said the words, go to the playground with my kids because <laughs> I hate doing that. Like, like, in theory, we're supposed to like it though. <laughs> but it's this idea of if I want to stop complaining about working all the time, mm. I have to make some decisions. What am I going to do about it? Well, there it is. I have to make some decisions about it. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I see my natural inclination is to work too much and I don't want that to be the case anymore, what am I going to do about it? I still need to create those windows. And I wonder if that isn't part of my self-sabotage is letting tasks run over so that I have this excuse to keep working and then I don't have to deal with, oh, I don't know what fun is anymore. That's, that makes me sad. <laughs> That's yeah. an emotional thing to deal with on a weekend. Like the only way to pass time is to do something productive. I think that's a, having a big cultural moment for all of us right now. Yeah. But I feel that very much. Yeah. You know, productivity is just post-World War propaganda. Right. Doesn't change the fact 
that I work all the time. <laughs> I know. I hate yeah, and it's, it doesn't change the fact that we have turned ourselves psychologically into things that want to work all the time. So it's like, that's a deprogramming process that still has to happen for me. And just thinking back to pricing, imagine like working fewer hours because you're charging more working fewer hours and earning the same amount of money. And I think that's the kind of linking, what does Mm. the money make possible for you? It's not, I'd like to say it's not all about the money, but we tie so much into like our revenue and our earning potential that if we could earn the same, if not more, and work fewer hours, what would our life look like? And so that is a good incentive to hike those prices. And I want to cover that with police tape, because I also think something's happening where what if we're afraid to charge more and do all this stuff we're supposed to do, because it's almost like we don't have permission to work less. And if I'm making more money, uh, this is going to get way too abstract, but I could see a world where we think we're making quote unquote too much, and that's not okay and not allowed. And so we're going to overwork and not take that leisure time that we're trying to earn. I guess I see that in myself because even when, let's say I have a perfect billing month, that is not gonna lead me to take more leisure time any Mm -hmm. weekend or the month after. That's just gonna tell me, oh, I finally did it. Okay, maybe if I work the exact same amount of intensity, I could do it again. I have not created that little loop that would let me work less because I'm doing so well. I think that's a dysfunction in our relationship with work right now that bleeds into pricing. Absolutely. And I, it goes back to this opener. It's not about the number. Right. So ah. <laughs> when we're looking at pricing, the number itself is irrelevant because of all these other things. So for anyone listening, if you're challenged by the pricing, think about these other things. Think about your relationship with work. Think about your relationship with money and think about any way you are getting in your own way and some this is the reflection self-reflection and i think when you can unpack some of these things you can let them go <laughs> so mm. easy. Just that. <laughs> you can at least know what haunts you at night instead of even if you don't let it go you can know why you're up late yeah but it's not as <laughs> it's not as simple as just putting a number up but sometimes it is just that simple we're just in a spiral of overthinking. <laughs> yeah. And there, there's an emotionality to it where maybe we don't realize a lot of the overthinking is optional because it's never been optional before in our lives. But my husband and I will joke about the, the guy with the keys analogy where like if somebody shares something really painful with you and you don't like this person and you don't want to go too deep on it, you just go, oh man, that sucks so much. You pat yourself down. Oh, I lost my keys. Give me a second. And then peace out. So I think there's parts of this where if you're nervous about raising your pricing, you just lost your keys. I'll just pop it up and move on. Let's go think about something else. Just do it. Reflect later. In some cases can be a good idea. Give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? You're back to where you started. 